Section 8 of History of the United States, Part 7, Progressive Democracy in the World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary Ritter Beard, Part 7, Progressive Democracy in the World War. Section 8. President Wilson and the World War Concluded. The Settlement at Paris. The Peace Conference. On January 18, 1919, a conference of the Allied and Associated Powers assembled to pronounce judgment upon the German Empire and its defeated satellites, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and Turkey. It was a moving spectacle. Seventy-two delegates spoke for thirty-two states. The United States, Great Britain, France, Italy, and Japan had five delegates each. Belgium, Brazil, and Serbia were each assigned three. Canada, Australia, South Africa, India, China, Greece, Hejaz, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Siam, and Czechoslovakia were allotted two apiece. The remaining states of New Zealand, Bolivia, Cuba, Ecuador, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Liberia, Nicaragua, Panama, Peru, and Uruguay each had one delegate. President Wilson spoke in person for the United States. England, France, and Italy were represented by their premiers, David Lloyd George, Georges Clemenceau, and Vittorio Orlando. The Supreme Council the real work of the settlement was first committed to a Supreme Council of ten representing the United States, Great Britain, France, Italy, and Japan. This was later reduced to five members. Then Japan dropped out, and finally Italy, leaving only President Wilson and the premiers, Lloyd George and Clemenceau, the big three, who assumed the burden of mighty decisions. On May 6 their work was completed, and in a secret session of the full conference the whole treaty of peace was approved, though a few of the powers made reservations or objections. The next day the treaty was presented to the Germans, who, after prolonged protests, signed on the last day of grace, June 28. This German treaty was followed by agreements with Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Turkey. Collectively, these great documents formed the legal basis of the general European settlement. The Terms of the Settlement The combined treaties make a huge volume. The German treaty alone embraces about 80,000 words. Collectively, they cover an immense range of subjects which may be summarized under five heads. 1. The Territorial Settlement in Europe. 2. The Destruction of German Military Power. 3. Reparations for damages done by Germany and her allies. 4. The disposition of German colonies and protectorates. And 5. The League of Nations. Germany was reduced by the cession of Alsace-Lorraine to France, and the loss of several other provinces. Austria-Hungary was dissolved and dismembered. Russia was reduced by the creation of new states on the West. Bulgaria was stripped of her gains in the recent Balkan Wars. Turkey was dismembered. Nine new independent states were created. Poland, Finland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, Czechoslovakia, Armenia, and Hejaz. 
Italy, Greece, Romania, and Serbia were enlarged by cessions of territory, and Serbia was transformed into the great state of Yugoslavia. The destruction of German military power was thorough. The entire navy, with minor exceptions, was turned over to the Allied and Associated Powers. Germany's total equipment for the future was limited to six battleships and six light cruisers, with certain small vessels, but no submarines. The number of enlisted men and officers for the army was fixed at not more than 100,000. The general staff was dissolved, and the manufacture of munitions restricted. Germany was compelled to accept full responsibility for all damages, to pay five billion dollars in cash and goods, and to make certain other payments which might be ordered from time to time by an inter-allied reparations commission. She was also required to deliver to Belgium, France, and Italy millions of tons of coal every year for ten years, while by way of additional compensation to France, the rich coal basin of the Saar was placed under inter-allied control to be exploited under French administration for a period of at least fifteen years. Austria and the other associates of Germany were also laid under heavy obligations to the victors. Damages done to shipping by submarines and other vessels were to be paid for on the basis of ton for ton. The disposition of the German colonies and the old Ottoman Empire presented knotty problems. It was finally agreed that the German colonies and Turkish provinces, which were in a backward stage of development, should be placed under the tutelage of certain powers acting as mandatories, holding them in a sacred trust of civilization. An exception to the mandatory principle arose in the case of German rights in Shantung, all of which were transferred directly to Japan. It was this arrangement that led the Chinese delegation to withhold their signatures from the treaty. THE LEAGUE OF NATIONS High among the purposes which he had in mind in summoning the nation to arms, President Wilson placed the desire to put an end to war. All through the United States the people spoke of the war to end war. No slogan called forth a deeper response from the public. The President himself repeatedly declared that a general association of nations must be formed to guard the peace and protect all against the ambitions of the few. As I see it, he said in his address on opening the Fourth Liberty Loan Campaign, quote, the Constitution of the League of Nations and the clear definition of its objects must be a part, in a sense the most essential part, of the peace settlement itself. End quote. Nothing was more natural, therefore, than Wilson's insistence at Paris upon the formation of an international association. Indeed, he had gone to Europe in person largely to accomplish that end. Part one of the treaty with Germany, the covenant of the League of Nations, was due to his labors more than to any other influence. Within the League thus created were to be embraced all the allied and associated powers and nearly all the neutrals. By a two-thirds vote of the League Assembly, the excluded nations might be admitted. The agencies of the League of Nations were to be three in number. One, a permanent secretariat located at Geneva. Two, an assembly consisting of one delegate from each country, dominion, or self-governing colony, including Canada, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, and India. 
three and a council consisting of representatives of the united states great britain france italy and japan and four other representatives selected by the assembly from time to time the duties imposed on the league and the obligations accepted by its members were numerous and important the council was to take steps to formulate a scheme for the reduction of armaments and to submit a plan for the establishment of a permanent court of international justice the members of the league article ten were to respect and preserve as against external aggression the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all the associated nations they were to submit to arbitration or inquiry by the council all disputes which could not be adjusted by diplomacy and in no case to resort to war until three months after the award should any member disregard its covenants its action would be considered an act of war against the league which would accordingly cut off the trade and business of the hostile member and recommend through the council to the several associated governments the military measures to be taken in case the decision in any arbitration of a dispute was unanimous the members of the league affected by it were to abide by it such was the settlement at paris and such was the association of nations formed to promote the peace of the world they were quickly approved by most of the powers and the first assembly of the league of nations met at geneva late in nineteen twenty the treaty in the united states when the treaty was presented to the united states senate for approval a violent opposition appeared in that chamber the republicans had a slight majority and a two-thirds vote was necessary for ratification the sentiment for and against the treaty ran mainly upon party lines but the republicans were themselves divided the major portion known as reservationists favored ratification with certain conditions respecting american rights while a small though active minority rejected the league of nations in its entirety announcing themselves to be irreconcilables the grounds of this republican opposition lay partly in the terms of peace imposed on germany and partly in the covenant of the league of nations exception was taken to the clauses which affected the rights of american citizens in property involved in the adjustment with germany but the burden of criticism was directed against the league article ten guaranteeing against external aggression the political independence and territorial integrity of the members of the league was subjected to a specially heavy fire while the treatment accorded to china and the sections affecting american internal affairs were likewise attacked as unjust and dangerous as an outcome of their deliberations the republicans proposed a long list of reservations which touched upon many of the vital parts of the treaty these were rejected by president wilson as amounting in effect to a nullification of the treaty as a deadlock ensued the treaty was definitely rejected owing to the failure of its sponsors to secure the requisite two-thirds vote the league of nations in the campaign of nineteen twenty at this juncture the presidential campaign of nineteen twenty opened the republicans while condemning the terms of the proposed league endorsed the general idea of an international agreement to prevent war 
their candidate, Senator Warren G. Harding of Ohio, maintained a similar position without stating definitely whether the league devised at Paris could be recast in such a manner as to meet his requirements. The Democrats, on the other hand, while not opposing limitations clarifying the obligations of the United States, demanded, quote, the immediate ratification of the treaty without reservations which would impair its essential integrity. End quote. The Democratic candidate, Governor James M. Cox of Ohio, announced his firm conviction that the United States should go into the League without closing the door to mild reservations. He appealed to the country largely on that issue. The election of Senator Harding in an extraordinary landslide, coupled with the return of a majority of Republicans to the Senate, made uncertain American participation in the League of Nations. The United States and International Entanglements Whether America entered the League or not, it could not close its doors to the world and escape perplexing international complications. It had ever-increasing financial and commercial connections with all other countries. Our associates in the recent war were heavily indebted to our government. The prosperity of American industries depended to a considerable extent upon the recovery of the impoverished and battle-torn countries of Europe. There were other complications no less specific. The United States was compelled by force of circumstances to adopt a Russian policy. The government of the Tsar had been overthrown by a liberal revolution, which in turn had been succeeded by an extreme communist dictatorship. The Bolsheviki, or majority faction of the socialists, had obtained control of the National Council of Peasants, Workingmen and Soldiers, called the Soviet, and inaugurated a radical regime. They had made peace with Germany in March, 1918. Thereupon, the United States joined England, France, and Japan in an unofficial war upon them. After the general settlement at Paris in 1919, our government, while withdrawing troops from Siberia and Archangel, continued in its refusal to recognize the Bolshevists or to permit unhampered trade with them. President Wilson repeatedly denounced them as the enemies of civilization, and undertook to lay down for all countries the principles which should govern intercourse with Russia. Further international complications were created in connection with the World War, wholly apart from the terms of peace or the League of Nations. The United States had participated in a general European conflict which changed the boundaries of countries, called into being new nations, and reduced the power and territories of the vanquished. Accordingly, it was bound to face the problem of how far it was prepared to cooperate with the victors in any settlement of Europe's difficulties. By no conceivable process, therefore, could America be disentangled from the web of world affairs. Isolation, if desirable, had become impossible. Within three hundred years from the founding of the tiny settlements at Jamestown and Plymouth, America, by virtue of its institutions, its population, its wealth, and its commerce, had become first among the nations of the earth. By moral obligations, and by practical interests, its fate was thus linked with the destiny of all mankind. Summary of Democracy and the World War 
The astounding industrial progress that characterized the period following the Civil War bequeathed to a new generation many perplexing problems connected with the growth of trusts and railways, the accumulation of great fortunes, the increase of poverty in the industrial cities, the exhaustion of the free land, and the acquisition of dominions in distant seas. As long as there was an abundance of land in the West, any able-bodied man with initiative and industry could become an independent farmer. People from the cities and immigrants from Europe had always before them that gateway to property and prosperity. When the land was all gone, American economic conditions inevitably became more like those of Europe. Though the new economic questions had been vigorously debated in many circles before his day, it was President Roosevelt who first discussed them continuously from the White House. The natural resources of the country were being exhausted. He advocated their conservation. Huge fortunes were being made in business creating inequalities in opportunity. He favored reducing them by income and inheritance taxes. Industries were disturbed by strikes. He pressed arbitration upon capital and labor. The free land was gone. He declared that labor was in a less favorable position to bargain with capital, and therefore should organize in unions for collective bargaining. There had been wrongdoing on the part of certain great trusts. Those responsible should be punished. The spirit of reform was abroad in the land. The spoils system was attacked. It was alleged that the political parties were dominated by rings and bosses. The United States Senate was called a millionaire's club. Poverty and misery were observed in the cities. State legislatures and city governments were accused of corruption. In answer to the charges, remedies were proposed and adopted. Civil service reform was approved. The Australian ballot, popular election of senators, the initiative, referendum, and recall, commission and city manager plans for cities, public regulation of railways, compensation for those injured in industries, minimum wages for women and children, pensions for widows, the control of housing in the cities, these and a hundred other reforms were adopted and tried out. The national watchword became, America, improve thyself. The spirit of reform broke into both political parties. It appeared in many statutes enacted by Congress under President Taft's leadership. It disrupted the Republicans temporarily in 1912 when the Progressive Party entered the field. It led the Democratic candidate in that year, Governor Wilson, to make a progressive appeal to the voters. It inspired a considerable program of national legislation under President Wilson's two administrations. In the age of change, four important amendments to the federal constitution, the first in more than forty years, were adopted. The sixteenth empowered Congress to lay an income tax. The seventeenth assured popular election of senators. The eighteenth made prohibition national. The nineteenth, following upon the adoption of women's suffrage in many states, enfranchised the women of the nation. In the sphere of industry, equally great changes took place. The major portion of the nation's business passed into the hands of corporations. In all the leading industries of the country, labor was organized into trade unions and federated in a national organization. 
the power of organized capital and organized labor loomed upon the horizon. Their struggles, their rights, and their place in the economy of the nation raised problems of the first magnitude. While the country was engaged in a heated debate upon its domestic issues, the World War broke out in Europe in 1914. As a hundred years before, American rights upon the high seas became involved at once. They were invaded on both sides, but Germany, in addition to assailing American ships and property, ruthlessly destroyed American lives. She set at naught the rules of civilized warfare upon the sea. Warnings from President Wilson were without avail. Nothing could stay the hand of the German war party. After long and patient negotiations, President Wilson in 1917 called upon the nation to take up arms against an assailant that had in effect declared war upon America. The answer was swift and firm. The national resources, human and material, were mobilized. The Navy was enlarged, a draft army created, huge loans floated, heavy taxes laid, and the spirit of sacrifice called forth in a titanic struggle against an autocratic power that threatened to dominate Europe and the world. In the end, American financial, naval, and military assistance counted heavily in the scale. American sailors scoured the seas searching for the terrible submarines. American soldiers took part in the last great drives that broke the might of Germany's army. Such was the nation's response to the President's summons to arms in a war for democracy and to end war. When victory crowned the arms of the powers united against Germany, President Wilson in person took part in the Peace Council. He sought to redeem his pledge to end wars by forming a League of Nations to keep the peace. In the treaty drawn at the close of the war, the first part was a covenant binding the nations in a permanent association for the settlement of international disputes. This treaty the President offered to the United States Senate for ratification and to his country for approval. Once again, as in the days of the Napoleonic Wars, the people seriously discussed the place of America among the powers of the earth. The Senate refused to ratify the treaty. World politics then became an issue in the campaign of 1920. Though some Americans talked as if the United States could close its doors and windows against all mankind, the victor in the election, Senator Harding, of Ohio, knew better. The election returns were hardly announced before he began to ask the advice of his countrymen on the pressing theme that would not be downed. What part shall America, first among the nations of the earth in wealth and power, assume at the council table of the world? General References Woodrow Wilson, The New Freedom C.L. Jones, The Caribbean Interests of the United States H.P. Willis, The Federal Reserve C. W. Barron, The Mexican Problem, Critical Toward Mexico. L. J. De Becker, The Plot Against Mexico, Against American Intervention. Theodore Roosevelt, America and the World War. E. E. Robinson and V. J. West, The Foreign Policy of Woodrow Wilson. J. S. Bassett, Our War with Germany. Carlton J. H. Hayes, A Brief History of the Great War. J. B. McMaster, The United States in the World War. Research Topics. 
President Wilson's First Term. Elson, History of the United States, pages 925 to 941. The Underwood Tariff Act. Og, National Progress, the American Nation Series, pages 209 to 226. The Federal Reserve System. Og, pages 228 to 232. Trust and Labor Legislation. Og, pages 232 to 236. Legislation Respecting the Territories. Og, pages 236 to 245. American Interests in the Caribbean. Og, pages 246 to 265. American Interests in the Pacific. Og, pages 304 to 324. Mexican Affairs. Hayworth, pages 388 to 395. Og, pages 284 to 304. The First Phases of the European War. Hayworth, pages 395 to 412. Og, pages 325 to 343. The Campaign of 1916. Hayworth, pages 412 to 418. Og, pages 364 to 383. America Enters the War. Hayworth, pages 422 to 440 pages 454 to 475. Og, pages 384 to 399. Elson, pages 951 to 970. Mobilizing the Nation. Hayworth, pages 441 to 453. The Peace Settlement. Hayworth, pages 475 to 497. Elson, pages 971 to 982. Questions. 1. Enumerate the chief financial measures of the Wilson administration, review the history of banks and currency, and give the details of the Federal Reserve Law. 2. What was the Wilson policy toward trusts, toward labor? 3. Review again the theory of states' rights. How has it fared in recent years? 4. What steps were taken in colonial policies, in the Caribbean? 5. Outline American-Mexican relations under Wilson. 6. How did the World War break out in Europe? 7. Account for the divided state of opinion in America. 8. Review the events leading up to the War of 1812. Compare them with the events from 1914 to 1917. 9. State the leading principles of international law involved and show how they were violated. 10. What American rights were assailed in the submarine campaign? 11. Give Wilson's position on the Lusitania affair. 12. How did the World War affect the presidential campaign of 1916? 13. How did Germany finally drive the United States into war? 14. State the American war aims given by the president. 15. Enumerate the measures taken by the government to win the war. 16. Review the part of the Navy in the war, the Army. 17. How were the terms of peace formulated? 18. Enumerate the principal results of the war. 19. Describe the League of Nations. 20. Trace the fate of the treaty in American politics. 21. Can there be a policy of isolation for America? End of section 8
End of the History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary Ritter Beard. Part 7. Progressive Democracy and the World War.